1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. In just a few moments, you'll hear our exclusive interview with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Plus, we'll hear the U.S. response to what has been a critical week on the national security front. Marked by increasingly desperate moves on the part of Russian President Vladimir Putin as Russia struggles in their war on Ukraine. Here at home, we've also got a new CBS News poll that reveals some disturbing indications about voters who want to contest the upcoming elections six weeks before Election Day and a look at the potential impact of those higher interest rates from the Federal Reserve. But we begin with Ukraine. Our Deborah Pata has the latest from Kyiv. <laughs> Staged polls in occupied cities like these, referendums
3: amid the rubble and ruin of war. A grotesque mockery of democracy, ballots propped up by bullets. Election officials, accompanied by armed soldiers, go traipsing up flights of stairs, knocking on doors, searching for voters. Others pound the streets with loud hailers. Russian news outlets were keen to show enthusiastic voters in occupied Kherson. A day later, that same location was deserted. Ivan Fedorov, the exiled mayor of now occupied Melitopol, calls it a farce.
4: I think that uh, we can name Russian it's a terrorist which holds our citizens as hostage. Russians take a hostage our citizens now inside Melitopol.
3: The White House regards the referendums as a sign of Vladimir Putin's weakness following crushing battlefield defeats. But Putin's not only a sore loser, he's a dangerous one. Threatening nuclear weapons and imposing an immediate call up for military reservists. It sparked widespread anti war protests at home, resulting in hundreds of arrests and the panicked exodus of young men. Fleeing the country to dodge the draft, like Sergei caught up in a long line of traffic at the Finnish border.
5: I just pack my bag and uh, directly go to uh, Finland.
3: Many of those called up have never fought in a war, let alone one that already has hardened Russian fighters on the run. Nobody is waiting with bated breath here in Ukraine for the results of those elections. It is clear Putin wants to push through a vote to annex the territories quickly, and that could happen as early as this week, Margaret.
2: Our Deborah Pata reporting from Ukraine. When we spoke to President Volodymyr Zelensky Saturday, we began with Vladimir Putin's referendum in Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine. Actions intended to help him justify annexing territory, which is equivalent to the size of the state of Maine. It is illegal under international law. The U.S. says they're a sham and intended to take about 15% of your territory away. What happens to Ukrainians living in these areas if they respond no, when they are asked if they want to be part of Russia?
5: The referendum can lead to very tragic moments. You started your question uh, with an answer. That is correct. Those people who don't come to referendum, you know, Russians can turn off their electricity and won't give them an opportunity to live a normal human life. They force people, they throw them in prisons, they force them to come to these pseudo-referenda, and also they also... Announced mobilization. They're forcing people to fight people from the temporarily occupied territories. I see other threats. When they complete, if they succeed with this referendum, um, the ballots have be, had been already prepared. The Russia, uh, the Russian government can officially announce that the referendum have been completed and the results will be announced this would make it impossible in any case to continue any diplomatic negotiations with the president of Russian Federation and he knows it very well i have spoken about it publicly i think it's a very dangerous signal from president putin that tells us that Putin is not going to finish this war. That is what's going on.
2: The Biden administration has built its entire policy around avoiding direct conflict with Russia. Once this annexation happens, does it change that dynamic? Is Russia using this as an excuse to say that it is being attacked? because the West is providing Ukraine with weapons. If it is seizing Eastern Ukraine to annex it.
5: Yes, that's exactly so. That is correct. Look, he knows, he feels it, and his military leadership reports to him. He knows that he's losing the war. In the battlefield, Ukraine has seized the initiative He cannot explain to his society why, and he is looking for answers to these questions. It's seven months since Russia occupied, tried to occupy Ukraine, but they couldn't. And now he has to justify. He has to take steps to justify. He says, see, let's look at it. I am not afraid of Ukraine, it was a special operation, but now it's Russia, it's our territory. Look, we conducted referenda, now it's the West who attacks Russia, now the West attacks our territories. We have let the society join Russia, the society that wanted to be with Russia, he has announced the mobilization, it used to be hidden. Now you see that it has been announced publicly. For several months they've been secretly mobilizing, Uh, but now they admitted that the army is not able to fight with Ukraine anymore.
2: Vladimir Putin continues to dangle the threat of nuclear weapons use. You've called this nuclear blackmail. Do you think he's bluffing right now?
5: Look, maybe yesterday it was bluff. Now it could be a reality. Let's look. What is a contemporary use of nuclear weapons or nuclear blackmail? He targeted um, and occupied our nuclear power plant in the city of Energodar. He continues his blackmail uh, related to us exporting electricity to Europe. Several days ago, they started shooting at another nuclear power plant. The nuclear plant lost all the windows and doors, etc. So he wants to scare the whole world. These are the first steps of his nuclear blackmail. I don't think he's bluffing. I think the world is deterring it and containing this threat. We need to keep putting pressure on him and not allow him to continue.
2: President Biden has said more sanctions are coming. I think
5: that there are sanctions that must be implemented towards the very end completely. If we cut Russian banks from SWIFT. We need to cut all Russian s- banks from SWIFT. If we talk about em- embargo uh, for um, um, for energy, we need not to look for compromises or um, c- we need to make sure that this embargo will be working and all the prices uh, would be implemented according to the embargo because the profits uh, from from um, these imports support the Russian army and fund the war the United States could show its leadership position and recognize Russia as a sponsor of terrorism I understand there will be implications these implications will make diplomatic negotiations impossible. However, they are terrorists and we cannot let them do it out of fear. They will not surrender. We need to keep applying pressure. They are terrorists. They don't have honor. They cannot keep their word. They do not kill military personnel. They rape torture and kill civilians. We found a big mass grave of half a thousand people. Today I received more information. The journalists are on their way. They found two more mass graves, big graves with hundreds of people. Also, and we are talking about a little town of Izum. Do you know... There are two more mass graves in a small town. This is what's going on. The sanctions need to continue. The sanctions will have political impact as well as financial impact.
2: The U.S. has released intelligence about Russia's filtration centers that it is putting Ukrainians into and estimate that hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian children are being taken to Russia. Does forcibly separating kids from their families constitute genocide?
5: We have all the information about filtration camps, isolation camps. People are being tortured with various means. They apply pressure, they torture with electric current, and so on. And apart from that, there's deportation. I can't say exact numbers, I don't want to lie, I want you to know all the truth. I can't say, or confirm that hundreds of thousands of children have been deported because families have been separated, but it's absolute true that there are thousands of these children. We have confirmed that.
2: Offensive operations are more expensive than defensive operations. The White House is asking Congress for $12 billion more to provide to Ukraine. What do you need this money for? What is essential right now? Thousands
5: of people have been killed, raped, tortured. That's why we need this help to deoccupy our territories to make sure that more people survive. I don't think that this is the highest price in the world to save thousands of lives. We're very thankful for HIMARS and other MLRS's that give us an ability to conduct our offensive. Our army uh, sees the initiative cuts, the technical capabilities Uh, Of Russia second artillery artillery helps us to save the lives of our warriors our fighters they need uh, an opportunity to get supplies of tanks from the United States as well as Europe if the US will be able to show its leadership um, and will be able to get the tanks um, then the Germany, then Germany and other European countries will follow. I think if we get tanks from the U.S., the European allies will also help us to de- occupy Ukrainian cities with tanks. Air defense systems. We absolutely need the United States to show leadership and give Ukraine the air defense systems. I. I want to thank President Biden for a positive decision that has been already made, and to the U.S. Congress, we received NASM's, it's the air defense systems, but believe me, it's not even nearly enough to cover the civilian infrastructure, schools, hospitals universities, homes of Ukrainians. Can
2: there be stability in Europe if Vladimir Putin remains in power? No. No?
6: I don't have anything to add.
2: My opinion
5: is no. We have observed this over the years. We
2: don't see stability. Mr. President, thank you for your time today. I do want to ask before I let you go you have kept ukraine united during this war have you seen evidence that vladimir putin will now come and target you in this moment of desperation
5: you are very right in saying that we are united we have become even more united now than ever. I'm one of the targets. Of course, it goes without saying. It's not because of my personality, just because I'm, because the president is a leader of their country.
2: Mr. President, thank you for your time and good luck to you, sir.
5: Thank you very much. We will need it. We wish you peace and everything. Thank you very much for your support, the United States.
2: And Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us.
7: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
2: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that.
7: Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. (laughs) Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.
2: We turn now to White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Good morning to you, Jake. Thank you for joining us.
8: Thanks for having me.
2: Uh, President Zelensky told us that if this annexation happens, it will make diplomatic talks with Vladimir Putin impossible. They need artillery in Ukraine, he says, more air defense systems and tanks. Will they get it? And how significant of an escalation is this?
8: Well, Margaret, not only will they get it, but they've been getting it. The United States at this point alone has provided more than $15 billion in weapons. And that's included air defense systems, hundreds of artillery pieces, hundreds of thousands if not millions of rounds of artillery. And we have facilitated the transfer of tanks from NATO allies who have the Soviet-era tanks that the Ukrainians have trained on. We will continue to do all of that. And what Putin has done is not exactly a sign of strength or confidence. Frankly, it's a sign that they're struggling badly on the Russian side. And we are going to help the Ukrainians uh, be able to take advantage of the gains they've made and to continue to push back against the Russian forces that are brutally occupying portions of their country.
2: Yesterday, Putin replaced uh, one of the top logistics generals with a man who's known as the Butcher of Mariupol. Are we seeing the beginning of the collapse of the Russian army?
8: I think it's too soon to make comprehensive predictions like that. I think what we are seeing are signs of unbelievable struggle among the Russians. You've got low morale where the soldiers don't want to fight. And who can blame them? Because they want no part of Putin's war of conquest uh, in their neighboring country. Uh, You've got Russia having depleted its stores of precision-guided munitions. You've got Russia disorganized and losing territory uh, to a capable Ukrainian force. And you've got a huge amount of infighting among the Russian military leadership, and now the blame game has started to include these replacements. So Russia is struggling, but Russia still remains a dangerous foe and capable of great brutality, as we've seen with these mass graves outside of Izium. So we continue to take that threat seriously, and we continue to see our obligation Being providing Ukraine all that it needs to be able to effectively defend itself and defend its country and defend its freedom. That's what we're intent on doing, and we are not taking our eye off the ball.
2: Vladimir Putin will carry out this annexation of eastern Ukraine within the next few days. Um, If Russia is expanding its nuclear umbrella over this part of the country, does that put the U.S. in more direct conflict with Russia? And does a nuclear weapon being used there put, put Russia in conflict directly with the U.S. and NATO?
8: We have been crystal clear, uh, up to and including President Biden, that we will not recognize the sham referenda. They in no way represent the will of the Ukrainian people. And we will treat this territory for what it is, Ukrainian territory, not Russian territory. And we will continue to support the Ukrainians as they seek to deoccupy this territory. So we've been clear: we're not going to stop or slow down our support to the Ukrainians, no matter what Putin tries to do with these these fake elections and fake referenda and annexation. Now, when it comes to the question of nuclear use, uh, President Putin's been waving around the nuclear card at various points through this conflict. The last few days is, are not the first time. But he and hasn't been as cornered as he is now. Be- It's true, and and it is a matter that we have to take deadly seriously because it is a matter of paramount seriousness, the possible use of nuclear weapons for the first time since the Second World War. We have communicated directly, privately, at very high levels to the Kremlin that any use of nuclear weapons will be met with catastrophic consequences for Russia, that the United States and our allies will respond decisively, and we have been clear and specific about what that will entail. We have, in public, been equally clear at, as a matter of principle that the United States will respond decisively if Russia uses nuclear weapons, and that we will continue to support Ukraine and its efforts uh, to defend its country and defend its democracy.
2: Russia's been talking about this nuclear power plant rather than nuclear weapons just within the past 24 hours. Where does that fall? Is this an escalating threat?
8: So uh, for your viewers, there is a a nuclear power plant that is in Russian occupied portions of Ukraine. Uh, It has been put into cold shutdown to make it less likely that there's some kind of catastrophic incident at the plant. It is actually still being operated by the Ukrainian operators who are essentially at gunpoint from the Russian uh, occupying forces. And uh, the Russians have been consistently implying that there may be some kind of accident at this plant. We've been working with the International Atomic Energy Agency and with the Ukrainian energy regulators to try to make sure that there is no threat posed by a meltdown or something else from the plant.
2: Jake, you're a busy man watching the world right now. There's a lot I want to ask you, but I, I have to ask you about Iran and these protests led by women, after the death of this 22-year-old woman who didn't have her hair covered properly in the view of the morality police, she died. How significant is this? And is it making you reassess the offer you put on the table to lift sanctions on Iran in regard to its nuclear program?
8: Well, first, Margaret, the fact that we are in negotiations with Iran on its nuclear program is in no way impacting our willingness and our vehemence in speaking out about what is happening on the streets of Iran. We have in fact taken tangible steps to sanction those morality police right. who caused the death of Masa Amini. We've taken steps to make it easier for Iranians to be able to get access to the internet and access to uh, communications technologies that will allow them to talk to one another and to talk to the world. So from our perspective, um we will do all that we can to support the brave people, the brave women of Iran. Right. I as was they asking you though about the
2: offer to lift and, sanctions off of Iran in regard to its nuclear program, because that would allow for the regime to have a financial lifeline.
8: Well I think it's important for everyone to understand that at the height of the Cold War, as Ronald Reagan was calling the Soviet Union the evil empire, right. he was he, also negotiating arms an arms control agreement Absolutely. with Russia. So that's, that is what we're talking about here. We're talking about diplomacy to prevent Iran from ever getting a nuclear weapon. Okay. If we can succeed in that effort, and we are determined to succeed in that effort, the world, America, and our allies will be safer, and that will not stop us in any way from pushing back and speaking out on Iran's brutal repression of its citizens and its women. Uh, we can and will do both.
2: Okay, so I understand the offer is still on the table. Strategy hasn't changed. Jake, thank you very much your time. Our September CBS News battleground tracker shows the race for control of Congress has tightened yet again. As of today, Republicans stand to win 223 seats. That is five more than they need to take control of the House. But that number is within the estimate's margin of error, which is plus or minus 13 seats. The GOP edge has been shrinking since July.
9: What makes a life a good one?
2: Welcome back to Base Nation. For a closer look at our CBS News Battleground Tracker poll, we're joined by CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto. Anthony, always good to have you here. Thanks for having me. And you've been very busy as we get closer to these midterms, and you tested a number of very big ideas. What are voters telling you they think's at stake?
4: Well, the first thing is it gives you a sense of the the stakes here in the minds of voters, which they say are really large. And specifically, 68% say their rights and freedoms are potentially at stake in this election. And for context, that's even more than, say, things like their finances and their financial well-being wow. is at stake here. Now, look, there's always in every election the campaigns will say, this is the most important election ever. Right. So we, we want to so step back and say, OK, be specific. What do you think will happen were one side or the other to win? And one thing that stands out is people think that if the Republicans take control of Congress, that women... By three to one, will have fewer rights and freedoms than they currently do than would have more. And some of that is related to views on abortion, which we'll get to in a second. There's also uh, there's other groups that stand out here. For example, LGBTQ uh, folks, voters think will have fewer rights uh, if the Republicans were to win. Now, the other part of this, though, is tied to views on democracy, which a lot of people worry about right now. And that comes out in some of these findings, too.
2: And this is elections are central to democracy. So what is it that people see at risk here when you ask that?
4: So three quarters of people continue to say they think democracy is under threat. That's number one. And then to your point about elections, we asked people because there's so much context here, people are still talking about election denialism, still arguing about what happened in 2020. So, okay, what happens if your side loses this time? Republicans, what happens if Democrats win a state or a district and vice versa? And we found a third of Republicans and half of MAGA Republicans specifically. And then just under one in five Democrats said their party should be prepared to challenge states and districts, that they lose. Now that's, a third of
2: Republicans.
4: It's a third of Republicans, and it's even higher for MAGA Republicans, yeah. And
2: the election hasn't happened yet.
4: And it hasn't happened yet. But so
2: it shows a distrust in the institution itself.
4: Absolutely. And I think that's really the critical point. If we have this distrust in the process, in the way that we adjudicate our differences here, going in before it's even settled— that's part of what's underpinning. People see that and they sort of That's the whole
2: ball game it, when it comes to democracy it really it is. itself. But I know you also, we referenced the fact that when it comes to how close this race could be, it's narrowing here. Republicans have a narrow advantage.
4: It is. Um, some of that relates, a lot of that relates for Democrats to the abortion issue. So let me start with that because it's also very much what the Democrats want this race to be about in part. Democrats have a growing lead among people who say abortion is the most important important issue. And in particular for women who want abortion to be legal, it's the most important thing. It's more important than inflation. It's more important than the economy. And it's a deal breaker. They have to have that position in a candidate to vote for them. Um, By contrast, let me turn to the Republicans for a second. Um, They continue to have their lead on the economy. It hasn't grown. It's stable. And there's plenty of voters out there who think they're not talking about it enough. But the other thing they kind of want this election to be about is immigration, Which we tested in this case. There's a big part of the Republican base, almost nine and ten, 87%, who like the idea of moving migrants from border areas into Democratic-leaning areas. Wow. Why is that important with the base? Well, to the extent that this is a turnout election, it's important to motivate your base. And OK, Republicans really like that. It's much more mixed with the rest of the public. But they specifically like it for one reason, that they think it calls attention to the problem. And to the extent that it's putting that more on the radar, it is for independents, for other Republican voters. And again, back to the idea of what is this election going to be about?
2: So we're in the final weeks. What's the closing argument?
4: I, I think two things. One is you're going to hear a lot of talk about democracy, like we, t- like we said. One is you're going to see this back and forth of what is this about? about so abortion rights, immigration, the economy. But the other part of it is there's half of each party's voters about that see the other side, not as political opposition, but as enemies. And it's a little bit sobering to see that. But you have to out from that think, well, what happens if you view the other side as somebody you can't work with? That's a threat to your way right. of life. In some ways, it justifies any action. It justifies things that you might say or do that you wouldn't otherwise if you still believed in the system. And I think that, again, it's it's difficult to say, and we should emphasize it's not everyone, but oftentimes those folks are the most ideological. They have the loudest voices, and they certainly drive the narrative a lot. And that's very much what you're going to see because then the parties start to say, well, those people vote. Mm-hmm. Those people are going to turn out. So if you see the campaigns talking about why the other side is bad, and a lot of voters say that's what the campaigns are mostly talking about, why the other side is bad, that kind of runs counter to what you usually see where campaigns are talking about what can we do for you.
2: Right. The affirmative argument. Yeah. Anthony, some really sobering perspective here. Thank you for all your uh All your work on this. Financial markets flashed warning signs last week of growing economic uncertainty. CBS News senior national correspondent Mark Strassman reports from Atlanta.
9: (laughs) Inflation stubbornly above 8 percent. The Dow ending this week below 30,000 vanished nearly two years of gains. Interest rates up three points in six months. And worse, we're all flying blind here.
8: And no one knows with any certainty where the economy will be a year or more from now.
9: That uncertainty is now hitting us where we live. We do like What's these cabinets. In America's worsening housing crunch. Over that two-year feeding frenzy to overpay, many buyers shudder at mortgage rates above 6%, the highest in 14 years. What's even more significant is how much sellers are pulling back. If you borrowed money at 3% to buy a house, you're never going to leave. Another issue, so-called shelter inflation, surging home prices and rents racing faster than wages. You're going to be feeling this. It's not just one part of the country, it's almost all parts of the country. Moody's Analytics says more than half of America's largest regional markets are significantly overvalued by 25% or more. 210 out of 413 markets, many pandemic boom towns. Moody's number one, Boise home prices 72% too high. Other overvalued areas, Austin, Charlotte, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. I expect national house prices nationwide, you know, across all these markets to probably fall about 10% peak to trough, you know, over the next year or two. Housing's notoriously cyclical. What goes up must come down. In a recession, Expect the law of gravity here to kick in with a vengeance. Moody's predicts home value declines could double. For now, few experts predict a housing crash, a plunge in home values as deep and painful as in the Great Recession. But in much of America, affordable housing's an ongoing crisis. Many experts say that should improve slowly if the Fed can nudge supply and demand into a healthier place And confidence in the economy can find a new home of its own. The sales volume is going to be low. Prices are going to come down some, but the bottom isn't going to fall out of the market.
2: That's Mark Strassman reporting from Atlanta. And we turn now to the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Raphael Bostic. Good morning to you, sir. It's good to have you back. Um, I want to get your perspective. We know stock market is not the economy, but it is a forward-looking indicator and it's showing some concern right now. Around the world, central banks are trying to get control of inflation. The Fed has already raised rates five times this year. Why isn't inflation coming down?
6: Well, first of all, good, good morning, Margaret. It's really good to see you. And you know, inflation is high, it's too high, and uh, we really need to do all that we can to make it come down. And when you think about its source, it's because we have very high demand, we have not enough supply, And as long as you have that gap, prices are going to be feeling upward pressure. So we've got to narrow that gap. And what we were hoping would happen is that we'd see some movement on the supply side to move the supply up so that there wasn't so much of a of an auction on goods that are in the marketplace. But that hasn't happened. And that really has meant that we have had to turn to our policies to try to take demand down and reduce its level. I think a lot of what you saw in the in the lean-in piece here. Is that that demand is starting to 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 shrink, uh, and ultimately that will start to pay dividends when we think about inflation levels.
2: So these higher interest rates for businesses, it you know it makes it more expensive for them to get loans. For consumers, it makes them more expensive, as we were talking about, to get mortgages, um, credit card debt loans. That's how it sort of cools things off a little bit. We've already had two back-to-back quarters of negative GDP growth, which would put us in that category of recession. How significant of a pullback are you expecting here?
6: Well, first of all, I, I think that the GDP number is one way to think about the economic performance, but many others would suggest that the economy has a lot of positive momentum. We're still creating lots of jobs on a monthly basis. And so I actually think that there is some ability for the economy to absorb our actions and slow in a, in a relatively orderly way. Look, we need to have slowdown. There's no question about that. Uh, but I do think that we're going to do all that we can at the Federal Reserve uh, to avoid deep, deep pain. And, and I think there are some scenarios where that's likely to happen.
2: Deep, deep pain or that you can avoid the deep, deep pain?
6: Oh, that we can avoid. Okay. pain. So thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry.
2: Uh, Alan Blinder, the former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, wrote a piece in the journal this week, and he said the chances of a softish landing um, based on history are well under 50 percent, but above zero. What are the odds here that this is a soft landing?
6: Well, I'm, I'm not an odds person. People who know me know I don't like to gamble because I hate to lose money. But I will tell you, this is something that uh, is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Uh, there will likely be some job losses. Uh, but I think if you look over the historical uh, history here and, and our economic experiences, Uh, there's a really good chance that if we have job losses, it's going to be smaller than what we've seen in other situations. And uh, that's what I'm banking on. You know, I talk to business leaders and and people in communities across the Southeast. They are concerned, but they do still feel that uh, there's a a way to get to 2% in terms of inflation uh, that will still leave them in a good place and leave our economy in a place where it is poised to grow and be resilient.
2: So you're still sticking with 2%.
6: Uh, that's our target. Uh, we, are, we haven't changed my view. I haven't changed my view on that. Uh, and I'm going to keep working to make sure that inflation starts to move in that direction as soon as possible.
2: So at the beginning of June, Jamie Dimon, who is the CEO of J.P. Morgan, predicted an economic hurricane. This week he was before Congress, and he said some of the challenges facing the U.S. are persistent inflation, shocks from Russia's war in Ukraine, and rising oil prices. You can't control some of those things. Are we in the eye of this storm? Is this the hurricane?
6: So I don't know if it's a hurricane. Look, there are lots of things that have happened over the last several months uh, that really have been unexpected and have made our job more difficult. You know, the war in Ukraine uh, definitely disrupted supply chains and I think set us back in terms of our recovery uh, by many months. Uh, And so that's that's real. But there are also some positive things happening You know, just last week. We averted the rail strike. I think that was a very positive thing. Uh, and we are still hearing, as I talk to businesses, that they are not expecting that uh, they're going to have to lay off people uh, very soon. And so we have momentum and, and we should not lose sight of that uh, as we start to see uh, demand come down and, and us get inflation under control.
2: So tell me about that, because you look at the American South Um We just did this CBS News polling to get political views, and we're seeing people in the state of Georgia have a rosier view of the economy than people nationwide. So 55 percent of Georgia voters describe the economy to us as good nationwide. Only 28 percent say that. So that's perception. What's reality and, and what's happening in the South that's not reflected in the rest of the country?
6: Well, I can't speak for the rest of the country. What I will tell you is here in Atlanta, there's still considerable job growth. Businesses are saying that they are seeing a lot of economic potential. uh, And that is shaping, I believe, uh, the willingness to invest in the future. Uh, My expectation is that uh, as we move along and we start to get inflation more under control, uh, that viewpoint will become more generalized across the country. And, and people will be able to look over longer horizons and see that there's potential out there. So, you know, I understand we've got a lot of uncertainty now. Uh, the situation in Russia that you spent the first part of this show on has got everyone on edge, uh, but we do know that uh, some bottlenecks are starting to ease. Uh, and uh, I'm hopeful that uh, over the next several months, we'll start to see that gap between uh, the high demand and that lower supply narrow significantly, which will then translate into uh, inflation moving closer to our target.
2: You have job growth, you said, in the South. Do you have enough workers?
6: Well, we do have the, the, the challenge of the, uh, a tight labor force. Everyone I talk to says, look, it's, it's harder to find workers than it, has, than it was two years ago. Is the solution but immigration? our are tell, uh, uh, well, immigration could contribute to that. Um, uh, but what I would say is our business leaders have said it's not as hard today as it was a month ago. So they are starting to see uh, those challenges ease up. Uh, but look, we have, a, we have lots of complexity in our labor market. We know inflation is down. We know that families have done a lot of uh, rethinking about whether they need two earners or whether they should keep someone home and not uh, we have challenges in terms of childcare. There's a lot of churn in our labor markets that we are gonna have to monitor. And you know, I'm grateful my team, we've been doing a lot of good research on this and we've identified some, some places to focus on Uh, that will give us a good clue as to uh, the extent to which labor markets are easing.
2: We'll be watching for that. Thank you for your time today. We'll be back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping
7: by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle.
1: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562 314 4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: We turn now to January 6th and the congressional investigation into the attack on the Capitol. Joining us is California Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar, who is on that committee and joins us from Los Angeles. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, We had a poll, as you may have heard out, that shows one third of Republicans and half of self-described MAGA Republicans think that the party should plan to challenge states and districts that Democrats win. This is in November. Seventeen percent of Democrats feel they should challenge if the GOP wins. What does that say to you about trust in elections and the risk of political violence like we saw on January 6th?
10: It tells me that we have more work to do, but it's deeply alarming that we had a former occupant of the White House who uh, any time result went a different way than he wanted called it fake news and he sought to undermine our democratic institutions time and time again. So it's not much of a surprise that some of that has seeped into uh, the American public. But our job is to make sure that we protect democracy and do everything we can to prevent that from happening.
2: So you have this first public hearing since July. It'll be this Wednesday. Um, Politico is reporting that Vice President Mike Pence's activities are a focus of that hearing. Last night at a a festival in Texas, uh, Congresswoman Cheney said um, that the committee is still in discussions with Mike Pence's counsel, but she's optimistic he has an obligation to appear. Uh, Where do you fall on that? Do you need to subpoena him or is that written testimony that you'd accept?
10: Well, I think it's important that we hear from the Vice President, Um, but the committee's work continues. We haven't made a determination on uh, where we go uh, with the vice president specifically Uh, those continue to be evolving discussions and if there is something to announce i'm sure the chairman will announce that but i think what's more important is this hearing that we have coming up on wednesday will be a continuation of what we heard in june and july which was that the president played a direct role in trying to undermine uh, our democratic institutions and prevent a peaceful transfer of power
2: so the focus is not specifically on the vice president
10: I'm not going to get into the the content of the hearing that we'll have on on Wednesday, um, but I think it's fair to say that that the vice president's role, the pressure that the vice president faced, uh, that was the hearing that I led in June, uh, that was a key focal point of the committee's work. Uh, There are Mm -hmm. new uh, details that we have learned broadly about the investigation, and we plan to share some of those this week.
2: Uh, to that point, uh, Congresswoman Cheney said there are 800,000 pieces of communication the committee has received from the Secret Service. Uh, what is in those documents? How material is it?
10: We appreciate that we have finally uh, started to get the documents uh, that we asked for a year ago from the United States Secret Service. Uh, These are still not uh, the the text messages that were uh, discussed before, but these seem to be communications um, internally amongst uh, staff members. Uh, so there's a lot of information that our investigative team has been going through. Uh, we will detail you know, all of it on Wednesday, but it's important that they are providing the information and that it continues to help in our investigative work. Uh, understand what exactly was happening on January 5th and January 6th as this rally was happening and as the president was directing the mob to go to the Capitol.
2: So the lead Secret Service officer on the then president's detail, Tony Ornato, has been uh, in question. He retired over the summer. Can you speak to him now?
10: Well, that's a a conversation for him and his attorney. Uh, We remain uh, deeply um, uh, wanting to to, uh, hear from him. Uh, the Secret Service indicated that they would make him available uh, prior to his retirement, and then he uh, coincidentally uh, went out and, and retired. So we feel that it's important. Uh, he has spoken to us, but obviously we've heard new details since his testimony that, that we feel are important to ask. So uh, he uh, and others remain an important part of our investigative work that continues.
2: Do you mean to suggest that he retired so he wouldn't have to testify?
10: I'm just saying that the, the timeline uh, is the timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in conversations to, uh, to hear from him, uh, and then he retired. So uh, as a private citizen, uh, we will continue to, to work with his uh, private attorney uh, to, see if it, uh, to see if he will come before uh, the committee and share additional testimony with us.
2: So you mentioned at the top how uh, critical the committee's work is, and critics have pointed to the fact that you took a break over the summer As a counterpoint to that, saying it couldn't be that immediate if you went away for six weeks, how do you respond to that?
10: Well, I can assure you that uh, and, and anyone looking at the calendar for the nine of us on the select committee uh, would know that we didn't go away. The investigative team uh, continued their work. They continued uh, looking through the, the documents uh, that you referenced earlier. Uh, we continued to in, investigate, uh, take depositions and testimony uh, from key witnesses. Uh, all of those uh, happened. They just happened out of public view. Uh, So we look forward to continuing uh, this discussion over 20 hours of hearings uh, that we have had so far. We look forward uh, to the hearing this week. But ultimately, this is about protecting our democracy. And the final report um, uh, in the future, uh, will have uh, the committee's stamp of what we do next and and what happened, uh, where Mm -hmm. we go from here, and how precious democracy is and that it's worth fighting for.
2: Congressman Aguilar, we'll be watching this week. Thank you for your time today. Our CBS News coverage of the January 6th investigation hearing starts at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can see it on our broadcast or streaming network on Wednesday. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Since we ran out of time in our interview, Jake Sullivan did want to clarify that when it comes to Iran, the Biden administration still believes in nuclear diplomacy, but is not close to a deal at this point. And we will see how things unfold. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, California Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar, and Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank President Rafael Bostic. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+.